Hey everyone, and welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington Church of Christ. I hope this will inspire you and help you grow in your faith as we see God move through His Word. Please stay tuned after to hear more about how you can help partner with us. Enjoy the message. I've been studying, uh, starting last week, a sermon series about giving. And that is not always anybody's favorite topic, but it is one of my favorite topics because it's in the Bible so much. And we have to get our minds right that giving is just a part of worship as much as singing or as much as praying or as much as reading our Bible. It's just part of our life. And one of the ways that we've that I've asked you to participate is to uh, take this book home and read it with your family one chapter a week uh, before the sermon. And uh, we have been doing this with my family, but i got to tell you, the first week that we did this, uh, one of my kids, and I won't say which one it was, really, really um, had a hard time listening. And um, he's not here right now. Oh, that narrows it down, doesn't it? And um, so at first, we said, hey, we're going to read this chapter out loud together. And he promptly rebelliously took out his phone to look at it instead of paying attention. And he's reading a book on his phone. That's He reads books on his phone. And I said, hey, uh, put, put that phone away. We're going to read this chapter together. We're going to read out loud. We're all going to listen together. And um, so one of my other kids started reading the chapter, and he had put his phone away, and we're, everything's going along. And then I see him secretly get his phone out and start looking at his phone again. And I said, hey, give me your phone. Give me, now, I'm, now I'm getting angry. You know how dads can get angry. Give me your phone. Um, I'm sure I said it much more gently than that. And uh, took his phone away. And then he pretends to go to sleep for the rest of the chapter. So here's how this ended. I said, hey, uh, were you setting a very good example for your brothers and sisters? Brother and sister about how to obey? No. Were you, uh, you know, listening to what God wants you to know from the Bible? No. I said, okay, well, here's how you can get your phone back. You have to do a book report on the first chapter of this book. And at first, he uh, disagreed with that. But then he came around because he wanted his phone back. You know, if we don't get, if we don't get our minds right about this, if we, if we see giving as an obligation or just a burden, because that's kind of how my son felt. He said, this is, a, this is just a burden on me. He didn't say those words, but that's what he meant. Um, If we don't see giving as a part of worship and we stay in that burden mindset, then uh, we never can grow as deep spiritually as God wants us to grow. And we can never know the joy of giving, either the practical side or the spiritual side. We'll never see that. Uh, A misconception about giving can lead to horrible, horrible mistakes. One of our college students came home uh, the other day running to mom and dad. Mom and dad, you gave me terrible financial advice. And they're like, what are you talking about? And the student said, hey, you told me to put my money in the bank. And you said it was a good bank. And you said it was uh, uh, known for being honest and upright and had lots of money. And they said, well, yeah, it is. And they said, she said, they're, they're financially in trouble now. And that's making me suffer. And their parents said, what are you talking about? And she said, I wrote a check and they sent it back to me, stamped on it, insufficient funds. See, thank you for laughing. See, if we don't have a good idea and a good understanding of what to do financially with our worship can lead to terrible mistakes. Um, I want to show you from the scripture that actually giving is a part of worship. 
Giving is a part of worship. And for two blessings that we get back. Uh, to get there, though, we're going to have to do a little bit of digging. We're going to have to go a little bit deeper than uh, maybe normal today. I've got a lot of scripture we need to hear today so we can come to an understanding. First is we need to understand how to read and, under, and use the Old Testament. If we want to understand how we do giving as part of worship, we need to read and understand. We need to know how to use the Old Testament. Now, Old Testament and New Testament, you'll find in your Bible, Old Testament is uh, 39 books of the Bible, and the New Testament is 27 books of the Bible. I think that's right. And uh, 66 total. And the Old Testament is valuable scripture to us, but we need to understand how we're supposed to go about reading it. First, I need to point out to you something very specific. We are not, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, kind of means Old Covenant and New Covenant. We are under the New Covenant with Christ. We are not under the Old Covenant or Old Testament laws. This is very important for us to understand because when we read about laws in the Old Testament, we think, man, should I have to obey that law? It is written in the Bible, so is that a command to me? The Old Testament laws we are not bound by. We are not commanded to obey because that is the old covenant system. If you want to go and obey the old covenant system, you can. But check this. The Bible says you cannot be under Christ if you're under the law. So if you want to go back and obey all the Old Testament laws, you can do that. But you cannot accept the grace of Christ if you do that because you're trying to earn your righteousness and honor with God by obedience, which you will fail at. God knew this. He gave us the Old Testament laws to reveal who he was and reveal where we fall short. But under the Old Covenant, even the people under the Old Covenant couldn't stay and obey. We're not bound by Old Testament laws today. Romans chapter 7, verse 4 through 6 says this. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve a new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. We serve under the new covenant, under the spirit, not under the old law. We need to understand this because we're going to read some Old Testament laws in just a second, and we're going to scratch our head and think, do those apply to me? They were written for the Israel nation under the Old Covenant. If you want to be under the law, you can, but you can't be under the Spirit if you do that. Galatians 2.19 says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. And Romans chapter 6, 14 and 15 says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, talking about the Old Testament, but under grace, talking about the new covenant. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So we understand first, we're not under the Old Testament law. Number two, we need to also understand that we will not be under a curse from not following the Old Testament law. If you didn't follow the Old Testament law, God would put you under a God curse. And it was to draw you back to him, to let you know you were not living correctly. But we are no longer under that curse. We know this because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham in the Old Covenant might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, 
so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit, that's the new covenant. The curse, Jesus became a curse for us. We cannot be cursed by God if we're in Christ. So we will not be cursed if we don't obey the Old Testament laws. Are we following along? This is really important to gather. This is really important. To get, otherwise, we're going to have some really bad misconceptions that lead us astray. If we are in Christ, we're led by the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. Romans 8, 1. We're not condemned by disobeying the law. And this is good news because we can never obey the law perfectly. We follow along? We understand what I'm saying here? You might disagree with me, but you won't be disagreeing with me. You'll be disagreeing with Scripture. So if the Old Testament is not, doesn't uh, command us like the New Testament does, the New Covenant, what value is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is still very, very valuable. Very, very valuable. The Old Testament teaches us where we can gain hope and encouragement. Romans uh, 15 says, For everything that was written in the past, talking about the Old Testament, was written to teach us, so through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. When we see the faith of the Old Testament saints, that gives us encouragement. The encouragement leads to endurance, and the endurance leads to hope, and hope leads to joy, and joy will lead to peace. The Old Testament is still very valuable. The Old Testament teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains so that we can even be equipped in righteousness. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says. All Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, written by God through men. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Old Testament is still valuable. It still teaches. It still rebukes. It still corrects. It still trains. It's this pattern, Holy Spirit-inspired pattern uh, we can follow when we look in all of scripture. What instruction is here for us? What principles from the Old Testament still apply in the New Testament? Is there anything in the New Covenant that reinforces an Old Testament idea most of the time what we're going to find when we read the new testament is that jesus is actually pulling us toward maturity he finds this old testament principle and then he pulls us a little bit further along that's what the law did in the old testament when the when the israelites came out of egypt all they knew was egypt's law and god gave them the ten commandments he gave them the law of moses well what that did was that pulled them out of the egyptian slavery law all the way to maturity in a law that God would find pleasing. Well, when Jesus comes along and he, he says stuff like this, you heard it said this way, but I tell you this way. And what he does is he pulls us toward maturity. You heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you, Jesus pulling us toward maturity. If you hate anyone in your heart, it's like you've committed the sin of murder. See how that pulls us toward maturity? It reveals the inner workings of the heart. The Pharisees, who were plotting to kill Jesus, set it up so the Roman government would arrest Jesus, try him, and then put him on the cross and kill him. But the Pharisees could say, we didn't kill anybody, we didn't murder anybody. See how the law did not pull them toward maturity, because outwardly they never murdered anybody, but inwardly they plotted the murder and had it carried out, they just didn't pull the trigger. But all scripture can give us training. And the Old Testament also gives us warnings. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, These things happened to them, Old Testament, 
as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of ages has come. So God warns them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, hey, they set their hearts on evil. That was in the Old Testament. That warns us. Don't do that. They got punished for that. They became idolaters. They, they worshiped idols. That's a warning to us. We've got to be careful of the idols of our heart. They committed sexual immorality. Well, that's a warning to us. That, that's reinforced in the New Testament. They didn't trust God. That's a warning to us. That's found in the Old Testament. Reinforced in the New Testament. And they grumbled and complained and died. Well, anytime somebody dies in the Old Testament from doing something wrong, we need to take that as a warning and look and say, hey, does that still apply to us? Is there a principle there that comes over in the New Testament? When used correctly, the Old Testament gives valuable insights for us today. Okay, now we can get to the giving part. We're not bound by Old Testament law. We are not under a curse of any curses in the Old Testament, but it still has value to us. And that brings us to this scripture verse that is oftentimes used to teach about giving. It comes out of Malachi chapter 3, uh, specifically verse 10, and it's about the tithe. A tithe is an Old Testament concept, but it doesn't just start in the Old Testament. Lots of communities and lots of people, uh, the Babylonians, uh, the Canaanites, uh, the Egyptians, they all had a tithe system. This isn't new to the Israelites, but it was new in how God applied it. And a lot of times when preachers preach about giving, they go to the tithe and they say something like, you should give a tithe because it was written in the Old Testament as a standard of giving given by God. Well, it was for Israelites, for the nation of Israel. And we'll explain that in just a second. But here's the verse lots of people use. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not be room enough to store it. That's the passage that a lot of places use to teach about giving. That's a good passage to use. There is some principles in there that still apply in the New Testament that we need to wrap our minds around. How can we understand this verse, knowing that it was written to the Israel nation, concerning their temple worship and how their temple worship worked, and under the old covenant, as a law, they must follow to have a relationship with God. If they didn't tithe, they would be put under a curse. Remember what we said? If we don't follow the Old Testament laws, we're not put under a curse anymore. So that part doesn't apply to us. What about the law? Well, I think this is one of the ways that we can see that giving is a part of worship because it's a principle that carries over into the new covenant. I'll show you why. I'll show you why. The tithe supported the work of the religious system under Israel's law, under the nation of Israel. When God brought the uh, Israelites out of Egypt and established them in the promised land, he gave each tribe an inheritance of land in the promised land. He said, this land, this part is going to belong to Judah, and this land is going to belong to Benjamin, and this land is going to provide, and he, he rent down to every tribe of Israel, there are 12 of them, and there were about 2 million people that came into the promised land, and God divided up the promised land by tribes. And he said, this is your inheritance forever. That's why later, at the year of Jubilee, at the 50-year mark, he said, return anybody's land that they had to sell to pay off debt, or anybody who got in trouble, they all need to go back to the original plot and inheritance. But there was one tribe that God didn't give any land to. That was the priests, the Levites. He told the Levites, he gave them this command, they were not allowed to own land, they didn't get an inheritance in the promised land of an actual plot of land, they couldn't work the land to get food 
like other farmers and, and other uh, cattlemen. They couldn't do any of that. They had to live off the tithe. So the Old Testament law for the tithe was everybody else who had land and property and earned money in that way would give 10% of what they had to the priests, and the priests would work in the temple and, and do the sacrifices and bring people close to God, show people what they needed to do, teach people the law, but they couldn't earn money the regular way, so they had to live off the offerings of the people. That's what uh, Numbers 18 says. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they will do while serving in the tent of the meeting. Instead of inherited promised land, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. This was really integral to the system that they had. At the end of every three years, Deuteronomy 14, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so the priests who have no allotment or inheritance of their own may come and eat and be satisfied and so that the Lord your God may bless all the work of your hands. There is a New Testament equivalent of this. Paul says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worth double honor, especially those who work is preaching and teaching. Paul sets it up. He says, hey, listen, this Old Testament principle of offerings providing a salary for religious workers is still in place. Those elders who direct the affairs of the church, the preachers who preach, maybe they want to spend more time using preaching than earning a living another way, and the offerings can help supply that. He goes on, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain, and the worker deserves his wages. This principle found in the Old Testament is reinforced in the New Testament. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple, this is 1 Corinthians 9, get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar in the same way the same principle the lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel that's kind of what i do i preach the gospel i teach i make home visits um, i study and i'm in prayer and that is what i get my salary from and that comes from an offering from the church it's not necessarily the tithe though in the same way that the priests receive their living from the gifts of the temple is the principle that's gone over. The offerings and tithes to the minister of the gospel, the missionaries and the ministries are funded by offerings. We have missionaries all over the world that are funded from our offerings. When we gather our offerings every Sunday morning, we have committees of people who are trained and are wise and are in prayer about how to distribute those funds to ministries and missionaries and missions all over the world. Well, they want to make sure they're using it wisely. This is the principle that is found in Malachi chapter 3. And I want to point out that there is a blessing of giving a percentage to God's kingdom, specifically by giving an offering of your percentage of your income that's consistent. That's one evidence of being a Christ follower that you want to give to his work. But how do you determine how much you should give? I think we can learn from the Old Testament to be trained. God called his people in the Old Covenant to give 10% to cover the ministry needs of the Old Covenant. And this tithe command came with this warning. Mal go back to Malachi again. God says, are you robbing me? And they said, but how are we robbing you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be room enough to store it. 
the warning was that the people of Israel could put themselves into a position to rob God, and if they and and the promise was if they brought the tithe in, they would uh, they could test God in that, and He would ensure that they had enough to live on and then some. So if we're going to determine how much we should give, we can use the Old Testament and know that we should choose a percentage and know what it is. If you want to know how much you should give in your offering, you should work out how much money you make, choose a percentage that you are comfortable with and you can give cheerfully and give that. And our job collectively as all Christians is to grow in our giving. So if you're already giving 10%, remember we're being pulled toward maturity, you should learn how to give 11%. And then learn how to give 12%. And learn how to give and keep going. If you're giving no percent, what you should do is establish what percentage you're going to give. 2%, 3%, you should know what it is. When somebody says, how much are you giving, you should know what percentage of your income you are dedicating to the Lord's service, and then you should learn to be pulled toward maturity and increase that amount as time goes on, especially as you mature in Christ. I cannot command you to give 10%. I'll tell you why. Paul says this, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, And in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. He's pulling us toward maturity. But then he reminds us, each of you should give what you've decided to give. Not reluctantly, like, oh man, I gotta give. Oh man, I gotta read this book. Not reluctantly, and not under compulsion. You must give. It's not like that. Each of you should decide what to give, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will be about, you will abound in every good work. That's that principle of the promise of the tithe being pulled into the New Testament. God said, if you bring the tithe in, test me in this, I'll make your storehouses overflow. And Paul says, hey, if you give a percentage, something you're cheerful with, whatever you give, God is going to bless. Whatever you give, God is going to bless. We need to know that. We need to hear that. And then we need to be encouraged to continue to grow in our giving. Is anybody bored out of your mind or we find this fascinating like I do? Oh, shoo. One person. Fascinating. We'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> Here's something to remember. This, the standard by which you give is the standard by which God will bless you and then some. Kingdom math and kingdom economics is always more than what we put in. This is what we put in with interest. Whatever you invest in God's kingdom, he gives you back with interest. Now remember, he doesn't give back so we can spend on ourselves. He gives us back more so that we can be even more generous. And we grow and we grow and we become more and more like Christ. The standard by which you give is the standard by which God will bless you and then some. Rick Warren is probably uh, my most famous example of this. He wrote this book. He always was a tithe believer, and he always believed in giving 10%. And he ended up writing this best-selling book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it sold, I don't know, a billion copies. It, It sold so many copies. He had been working at his church for, I don't know, 15, 20 years when he wrote it. It sold so many copies that he went back and he added up all of his salaries for those 15 years, and he paid back completely his entire salary for 15 years. 
Then he decided to live off 10% of his earnings and give 90% to the church. I'd love to have that problem, right? That I could, but I think we can all grow to get there. We can actually grow to live off less and give more. Where should you give? So we need to know how much we should give. It's something that you can agree to give cheerfully, knowing that God is going to bless you so you can give more, and so you can increase in your maturity and give more and give more and give more and give more. But where should you give? I believe you should start giving in your local church your offering to God. And I'll tell you why I believe that this is where you fellowship. So if we are encouraging one another and we're giving offerings, we get to celebrate all the things we do collectively as a body of believers. This is where you know your money is being distributed with wisdom. There's not one single person that takes the offering and decides where it goes. There's a committee of people that understand uh, how budgets work and understand how to use wisdom, and they pray over it, and they divide it up in a way that uses wisdom. This is also... where you come to be encouraged and encourage others and this is where you can learn the most with the help of your great small group teachers your great teacher and biblically sound saints the church of christ is always known for trying to focus most on the word of god and then teach that to its people we've been known for that for years and we want to continue that well that's why i think you should give first here but god will bless wherever you invest kingdom money If there's a missionary you really want to support, well, you should give offering here and you should give to that missionary. God blesses that and then some so you can be even more generous. If there's a mission that is God-centered and you know it is going to God, um, I, I say give to that. If that means you don't give here, well, that's something you and God have to work out. I think you should give here because there's precedent for it. In Acts chapter 4, verse 35 and 34 and 35, The first church, they began helping each other in that first church by giving offerings. They would sell stuff they didn't need. They would sell land and property they didn't have a a need for or weren't using and bring that money and put it at the apostles' feet. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. All of them, there was no needy persons among them. They were helping the church. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Well, there was a reason. The apostles, they heard all the behind scenes and they knew who needed the money most and could distribute it in a way that was most efficient. That's kind of what we do at church. We, We even take it a step further. We say we should give offerings and then we should learn how to give sacrificially. So for the past year and, uh, and several months, we have taken each month and we've dedicated it to sacrificial giving. We'll say give in the offering plate and then give above and beyond something. Last month we did uh, baby bottles. We still have a few missing, by the way. And Joan will hunt you down if you don't bring it back. Look, you can bring it back, put it right over there. Um, and that's sacrificial. We say give in the offering plate. And anything more sacrificial kind of hurts a little bit, but we know it's saving lives. We already support New Life Clinic. In our budget, in our missions, we take a percentage of our offering and we give it to New Life Clinic. They can be, they expect a check from us every month and we give to them every single month out of our offering. But we say, let's do sacrificial giving. Let's give a little bit more. And so we collected baby bottles and then the joy of that work, collectively working together as a church, saved more lives. Last September, we did this for two of our missionary families. One couple, I won't say their name because this goes out on the internet. They, they work in a place that is um, violent towards Christians sometimes. 
and they're sharing the gospel, and they need and expect the offering that we divide up and give to them every month. We give a percentage of our offering that we take in to this couple every month. Every month they get a little bit. They, they are relying on our gift to them. But last September, we said, give above and beyond your offering. We took up the same amount of offering and then had an increase, sacrificial giving, that went to our missionaries. They received a check for about $3,000 just out of the blue. Don't you think $3,000 just out of the blue is kind of a, a joy in their spirit? And we get a joy from giving. There is a real, practical, outer, visual gain, tangible gain to be had when we give. And this is the blessing of giving. It's like when Paul talked about the Macedonian churches that gave to help the churches in Jerusalem that were struggling with severe food needs. He says the Macedonian churches weren't rich, but they decided to give and then gave even beyond what they were able to, sacrificially. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 and 5. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves First of all, to the Lord, offering, and then, by the will of God, also to us, sacrificial giving. That's a beautiful phrase in the Bible, and we do that as a church. So, I say, but I won't command you, because you need to do this cheerfully, and of your own volition. I recommend that you give an offering, a percentage that you choose, and start to learn how to grow and excel in giving. Learn how to get to that 10%, the standard that God gave, and find a place in between there. In between where? Well, the standard God gave was 10%, but the example Jesus gave was 100%. Jesus gave all. I think you ought to learn to give somewhere between the standard God set and the 100% offering that Jesus gave of himself and give it to the local church first, and then to other missions and missionaries. That's my recommendation. When you give, it gives a practical blessing. It provides a minister a salary to continue to equip the church. It provides missionaries the ability to eat and do the work to teach new people about Jesus. And it provides ministries the ability to operate, and literally, like in the case of New Life Clinic, save lives. It gives joy to both the receiver and the giver. This is a practical, outward, visual gain, outer visual gain. But there's also, number two, if we, can, if we have time, an inward, let me see what time it is. Okay, we've got just a couple of minutes. There's also an inner spiritual growth gain. This is a blessing to us. Tangible, we get a joy, we help people, we save lives, we learn how to grow in maturity. But inner spiritual growth also happens. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive, Acts 20, 35. And Jesus would know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. He set the example of giving for all God's kingdom, for the saving of his followers, and he knows the spiritual blessings we will gain, and the spiritual maturity we will grow in when we learn how to give, and then pull ourselves toward maturity to give even more. Here are three spiritual blessings. Let me go over them real quickly. It uh, grows our faith. It destroys idols and it rewards us. It reminds us God owns everything. Giving grows our faith. It destroys idols and it reminds us God owns everything. Here's how it grows our faith. 2 Corinthians 9 says, remember this, 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Uh, What that means in a nutshell is we give, God gives us back even more than we gave so that we can give more again. Don't stop in the middle. We gave, God gives us more than what we gave. Don't stop there because then you just spend it on yourself. And I point at me. I struggle with this just like anybody else. When I get a blessing back, my immediately thought is not always, hey, let's give that away. But that's what God gives us, a blessing of financial, so that we can be rich in every way, so that we can be generous in every occasion. We give, God gives us back more than what we gave, so we can give away. When we see that happen, though, and we start sacrificially giving, we start excelling in our giving, and we see God resupplying us so we can give away more, it grows our faith, it makes us trust Him. I have a friend, we're going to have testimonies the next several weeks, of people who have learned to trust God with their giving, and God has blessed them and supplied their need every single time. And they say, it must be God. It can't be coincidence. Time and time and time again, but we give. We don't know where the money's going to come from, but we've vowed to give. We promised to give. This is what we've decided to give. And every time, God has supplied our need and then some. And so they grow in their generosity, but they also grow in their faith. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, and he's talking about forgiveness, but it also applies to our financial needs. He said, give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we give, God gives back to us so we can give more, and our faith grows. It also gives, giving destroys the idols of our heart. When we learn how to give, we get rid of some of the idols that we lean on that we want to give to instead. Usually, when we get money, we want to pay for more security, more comfort, more fun, more luxury, more ease, maybe a better name or honor, and we use our funds selfishly. But if we've decided to give a percentage of our income, no matter how much more comes in, we're already giving that percentage, we end up not spending on ourselves. We'll use the money, instead of going after those selfish things, to go after the things that will grow God's kingdom, equip other Christians, clothe the poor, and feed the hungry. This is a a battle we will all face. Jesus said to them in Luke chapter 12, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of abundance of possessions. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said never will I leave you and never will I forsake you one preacher put it this way every time you tithe you must deal with the desire for what you might have bought for yourself the idols that we have and to give means you didn't buy and that weekly crisis is utterly important to maintain God's appointed antidote to greed giving you want to get rid of the idols in your heart and you struggle spending your money and you struggle being aware of what spending selfishly, learn to give and you will grow spiritually. And finally, giving reminds us God owns everything. Psalm 24.1 says, okay, God owns everything. That's what it says. I was going to look it up, but that's what it says. 
It reminds us all, when we decide that there's a percentage we're going to give, it reminds us all that God owns everything. It's kind of like a finder's fee. When Abraham gave a tithe to the priest Melchizedek in the Old Testament, what he was saying is, God has blessed me with this victory. I'm giving him back a portion of my earnings because I know he owned it and he blessed me with it. It reminds us, it's kind of like if you hire a realtor to go find you an apartment because they have the expertise, they know what apartment you're looking for, and when they find one, they recommend it to you, give them a finder's fee for it. Or someone refers you a client for your business, you say, hey, let me give you a little percent of the profit I made off that client. God owns everything, and he blesses us, and we say, oh yeah, I don't want to ever forget that you are the one who blesses. You are the one who owns everything. You are the one in control of my earning, and that percentage helps remind us that he owns everything. If you're blessed, it was God's to begin with, and you give back to him the owner fee to remind you we are dependent on him for all of our financial gains. Giving grows our faith, grows our holiness, and it provides this inner spiritual growth that's directly tied to our giving practices. Your spiritual growth is directly tied to your giving practices. Isn't that hard to hear? Hard to hear because we all battle that greed part. But if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to heal some of your relationships, if you want to grow closer to God, you have to learn how to give as part of your worship. Okay, we made it. Some of you were fascinated, some of you were bored, and some of you were disgusted. Several years ago, I did a sermon on giving. And there was a man who got up in the middle He walked out the door and he complained to one of the ushers on the way out. I can't believe on this such and such day he would preach about money. And that man has never come back to our church. Some people get disgusted by money. But let me tell you, your spiritual growth is directly tied to learning how to give as worship. As we move into communion, I want to point out that communion is very tied closely to this idea of learning how to give too. What does communion do? Communion, what does communion do? Communion reminds us that we have idols of our heart that have to be destroyed. It reminds us because we examine our own heart as we go to communion and we look at all the ways we have failed Christ and we go immediately to him for forgiveness and he grants it instantly. It also grows our faith because as we celebrate that communion and the forgiveness and the reminder that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save me, he became poor so that I might become rich. He left heaven and came to earth so that I could go to heaven. It grows our faith. It grows our faith. It destroys our idols. And it reminds us that we are completely dependent on God for his grace. All of our spiritual gain is in his hands and he grants it through the grace of his Holy Spirit. Communion is a great reminder, just like giving is. Communion is our time of worship where we remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. We remember that he died because we were sinners and we needed to be made right with God, forgiven of our sin and the curse taken away. 
But it also reminds us that he loves us so much that he would do anything, including sending his son, giving his son. This is the perfect imitation that we go to for our own generosity. God gave, so we gave. Communion reminds us of that. Let me pray for our communion. Then the guys will come around, pass the plates. We'll take that bread and we'll remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And we'll take that cup and we'll remember his blood poured out for us, covered over all of our sin. And we will turn to him with joy and spiritual growth again today. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the teaching in Scripture about giving and how it imitates the gifts that you give us all the way from our very breath to our spiritual life through Christ. Lord, would you help us learn more and more about how to use giving as worship even as we participate in communion and remind ourselves of the great gift that you have given us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, I ask that you would pray and consider partnering with us financially so that we could continue to minister here in our community and beyond. Visit us online at wcconline.org backslash donate to find out how you can be a part of what God is doing here. Thank you again for joining us, and I hope to see you back here next time.